Well, good morning, West Mountain. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word as we take that mercy that he gives into our study of the text this morning. Romans 1. Romans 1 is where we have been. Romans 2 is where we begin this morning. Romans 2. If you're visiting with us, I just echo the warm welcome that I know you've received already. I invite you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you, right in front of you in the seat. Just take one there and follow along with us. The book of Romans, the New Testament, that is our study. Indeed, we turn the page, the chapter, if you will, today to this second chapter in our study. But as we do that today, be mindful of this. We want to carry with us the context that was set in the opening chapter. We don't want to lose that. We want to carry the context with us. Remember, Romans 1 not only introduced the gospel of God, so it was introduced, but the gospel of God was introduced And specifically this, shown that we need it. We need the gospel of God. Indeed, humanity is in a dire position. Let's be reminded of this position on all humanity. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We'll see later in the letter, there is no human being spared from this indictment. All humanity in view here. Mankind thus, by nature and by choice, suppresses the truth about God as such God's wrath is kindled. God's wrath is revealed, again as we learned in Romans 1, so God gives man up, or as God gives man up, we should say. Man suppresses truth, here it is, so God gives mankind over to himself. That is the judgment that we've seen in view. And as we look to chapter 1, we witness the effects of this judgment. This is what we've been studying. Remember the dishonored bodies, the dishonorable passions, and the debased mind. Still reverberating, I'm sure, from chapter 1. That vivid indictment carries us now right into Romans 2, and the argument's not lost here. Paul doesn't shift gears all of a sudden. He's, he's really narrowing things, as we'll see. And as it does, as the argument carries, we continue to follow what Paul is doing here and what God is teaching us. Paul is opened with the state of all humanity whose default is truth suppression. Let's be clear about that. For all humanity, their default is truth suppression. The lies that you see today, whether in politics or children, are nothing new. There is a default of lying that is true of all humanity, to suppress truth, to deny it, to rebel. And that is the natural state of mankind. That's the ongoing state of the pagan. The continuing state of the unbeliever, the one not reborn, not a new creation. Now, that is a huge group. It's a big group, and Paul, in one sense, will remain focused on that group. So let's be clear as we set the table. That group is still in view. That's the platform, all humanity. However, as this chapter opens, chapter 2, Paul shifts slightly to a subset of that group, to a type of pagan, to a type of humanity, a type of natural man. 
And that's the moralist. The moralist. You say, who is that? What is that? Moralist is a stripe of unbeliever. Not as shameful or shameless as we should say, as we've seen in Romans 1. Not necessarily so out there with their depravity, but one not as apparent as a pagan or not as apparent as other unbelievers. And you know who I'm talking about. That is because they do talk about righteousness. They do talk about it. It comes out of their mouth, righteousness. Unlike others that we've seen more broadly, for the moralist, righteousness is in their vocabulary. In fact, it salts their vocabulary. The moralist, by nature, claims a standard. That's what they claim. The moralist declares right from wrong. Unlike the broad group in Romans 1, the moralist has a righteousness in view, and they'll tell you about it. They'll tell you about it. However, the moralist may talk about what is right, but here it is, they're unable to do it. We're going to see it's not only not evident in their life, they're just unable to do it. Broadly then, they're in the same boat as the unregenerate because they lack ability. Oh, they talk a big game, there's no question about that, and they're certainly not shy to direct others about such righteousness. In the end, though, they're no better off than their pagan neighbors, and this is the point. Here we go. They, they, like their unbelieving neighbors, are equally under judgment. That's the point Paul is saying here. Just because we're going to look at a subset of humanity that talks a big game doesn't mean they're no less not subject to God's righteous judgment. And that is the point. God, Listen, God does not look on such ones, and this is but we make it very practical for us to begin. God doesn't look on ones, contrary to what is thought and taught in the world today, He doesn't look on those that talk a big game and says, well, at least you talk the standard and you know about the standard, so we're good. No, because behind the moralist, behind the talk is absolutely nothing. In fact, it's worse. Behind the pronouncement of righteousness is a practice of unrighteousness. That's what we'll see. This is nothing short of hypocrisy, really. Such is the reality for the moralist. And Paul turns his attention to such now. Again, he's moving down. And we note, this is a stop on the way. Paul is, has a, a very broad argument that he's working through in this book. And now he has a stop on the way. He's working somewhere, right? We noted that Paul begins with the broadest canvas, all humanity in view, but he's making his way. He's marching along in Romans 1 and 2 and 3 to a very specific kind of humanity, and that would be the Jew. He's making his way to the Jew, but he makes a stop here along the way. In fact, he gets us closer there when you think about standards and righteousness and so on. In fact, the introduction of a standard and the claim to righteousness gets Paul's argument closer. Next week, the text will arrive not just at the Jew, but the law. Now, that's Jewish economy, isn't it? Paul will get there. He will get to that next week. Let us then, as we continue through this book, consider the verses before us. Look at verse 1 with me. I'm going to read down to 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, that 
and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, you are a great God, full of kindness full of patience and forbearance for us. Lord, let us see that as we consider your word. But today, Father, we pray that in that, let us see that it is in light of who you are and in light of our sin, who you are is meant to lead us to turn from ourselves and turn to you. May we do so in this text, Lord. Whatever our state, Lord, just draw closer to you. So, Father, open our eyes to see what we need to see By your grace we pray. Amen. God's righteous judgment, that's what's in view here. Verse 5, particularly he articulates that. It's just as much in view for the moralist passing judgment as it is for the pagan suppressing truth. God's righteous judgment is inescapable and it's impartial. This is where this text takes us. So let's begin with our first point, and it is this. God's righteous judgment is inescapable. God's righteous judgment is inescapable. Eight times in this second chapter. That's right. Eight times Paul will refer to judgment. Krinos, judgment is still in view here. This is judgment of God and judgment revealed by God. God's righteous judgment, in fact, and we want to be clear when we articulate that. Paul starts here, look at verse 1. This is what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you judge, you, the judge, practice the very same things. That is quite a statement from Paul, and I think you see already, he imagines, as he's writing here, the the one that has been tracking with him. But the picture here, though, of this one that he's erected in front of him is not too hard to envisage. And we can follow what Paul is doing here. Consider for a moment the man, the old man, after reading Romans 1, he sits and he does what? He just cheers on the apostle Paul. The old man says, yes, Paul, preach it. Preach it, Paul. That's the problem with them, I tell you. Preach it. This is not one just clapping their hands, but rubbing their hands. Yes, God's righteous judgment is what they deserve. Yet look at what Paul says. Oh, man, in passing judgment on another, you what? You condemn yourself. Why? Well, not only do you acknowledge the standard, unlike the chapter 1 pagan, but you 
as you pass judgment, look at the text, practice the very same things. This does not mean Paul is thinking of something specifically, by the way, like sexual immorality or malice or faithlessness. We could go on or any of the 21 we looked at last time. This simply means you too, O man, do evil. You too, who's been cheering me on, who wants to see this, you too do evil. You, in fact, practice it. As you look at that, Verse 1, you can't help but think of David's claim. Do you remember King David's claim in 2 Samuel 12? Do you remember after his gross sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah? Blind in his sinfulness, and then the prophet Nathan comes and he tells a story, right? The poor man with his little ewe lamb, and it's just one. And the rich man has, what, an abundant flock. And the rich man audaciously steals the poor man's ewe lamb. And it's outrageous, it's outrageous. Any telling of that story, you hardly need to know all the details. You just need to know the one details. And then David cries out when he hears that. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. You remember that? David recognizes in that indictment that there's a standard and a sin, and it deserves judgment. But of course, there's a problem, isn't there? Famously, as Nathan would tell him shortly, he says, David, what? You are that man. And in your condemnation of that man, you've indicted yourself. The implication again, David, in condemning that man, you have condemned yourself. Same reality here in Romans 2.1. Paul says this is what this type of man does. In passing judgment on others, he passes judgment on self. He passes judgment on himself because he too practices the very same things. And just because he speaks first, or speaks loudly about another sin is no excuse. Because he too, and here it is, this is the point, he too cannot escape God's righteous judgment. It falls too on him. Here, in fact, for this moralist, his own words condemn him. And it turns out that his words are a poor mask for his practice. So like all of humanity has no excuse for their truth suppression in Romans 1, here the moralist has no excuse for their passing judgment in Romans 2. Claiming God's righteous standard may fool people around you, Paul implies, but it does not fool God. Because God, here it is, doesn't weigh claims, does He? God is not one enthroned that sits and weighs the claims of humanity, And we will see this a lot this morning. But he weighs what? Actions. Look at verse 2. So clear. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on the professors of such things. No. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who what? Practice such things. Where does the judgment of God rightly fall? Again, we have to make sure we're clear on this. On words, on claims, on boasts. No. Verse 2, God's righteous judgment falls on those who practice such things. The point here, church, is that talk, this talk is not just condemning, verse 1, but it harms you in seeing that condemnation. Do you see that? That's what that talk does. It doesn't just condemn yourself, but it harms you even to see it. God's righteous judgment is dispensed according to what one practices. That's what the text is teaching us today. Now, that is clear, but this man, like many people, suppose wrongly here. 
And this wrong thinking, this false presupposition is blinding, if not deadly. Paul continues in verse 3, let's see how. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Look at this. How is it deadly? It's not just that they're deceived about their own sin, condemnation, but look at their fate. There's no escape for the one that practices such things, regardless of their words, regardless of their boast. God's righteous judgment is inescapable, but humanity looks for out clauses, do they not? It's like the sibling, right? You know this, that thinks they'll escape the wrath of dad and mom by what? Talking about the other sibling, pronouncing judgment on the other sibling. And thinking that they'll escape the wrath of dad and mom if they can just throw the smoke screen up and say, look at them. Well, they don't escape, do they, mom and dad? It comes on them as well. Such smoke screen, such a smoke screen is Paul's first point here, but then he turns to an alternative. That's one way the moralist will behave, but here's another way, and the apostles suggest something closer, and if we were to hope all things here, we'd say giving the benefit of the doubt to the moralist. At best, look at verse 4, or do you, or, in other words, that is one, but how about this, or do you presume in your boast and in your indictment, or do you presume on the riches of His, God's kindness and forbearance and patience? What's Paul saying here? Maybe the moralist is more an antinomian in practice, right? Maybe he's that, it's it's God first and His grace first and who He is. Maybe tip his cap to his own sin, but he's like, well, look more at my God. Maybe the moralist does recognize and see a sin, but he still has in mind other sins. Maybe there's a self-measurement going on, but here it is. And maybe he just feels that he still has a leg up because he recognizes it. And not just his sin, but his God. Sure, he may say, sure, I sin, sure, sure, let's get past that quickly, but I know my God. I know my God. His God, this man says, my God, the moralist claims, is a kind God. He's a forbearing God, and he's a patient God, don't you know? And that's who he is after all, and that's where I stand. God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, the sinner seeking escape always seeks an out with who God is, doesn't he? But here's the catch. You never see the sinner seeking escape and refuge in God with what? His wrath and justice. You never see the sinner saying, well, I know my God. He's just, and he is one that brings his wrath. No. It's a very convenient refuge. This is humanity. It was the philosopher Heinrich Hein seeking escape for what was coming after his life. He was on his deathbed, and he said this. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. On his deathbed, with punishment, final judgment looming, he said, God will forgive me. It's his job. You know what, Westmount? How many men and women think exactly the same today? How many? Isn't that the heart? God will forgive me because he's God, isn't he? It's his job to do that. Unless he drink and be merry then. When confronted with the claims of God on their life, maybe at the end of life, 
Such one, oh man, clings to this presumption, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay because God is kind. I've heard lots of stories in my childhood about a a good God, and he understands. Yet, oh man, oh woman, this is a perilous presumption. The riches, look at that word, meaning the abundance of his character and his attributes, the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his bearing with sin, that's what that is, his patience, it needs no explanation. Listen, oh man, those are not meant to have one sit back and feel at ease about final judgment. That's not the purpose, to sit back and say, well, I know my God, I'm going to be okay. Look, let's look at what the Word of God says. Those riches of God are meant for this, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, here it is, that God's kindness is meant what? To lead you to repentance. God is kind to the sinner so that he would repent. God is forbearing to the sinner so that he would repent. And God is certainly patient with the sinner. Why? So that he would repent. That's the goal and intent of God's kindness, to bring the sinner to their knees, not to make them feel better, to humble them, to break them down. Listen, His kindness is meant to crush you. That's it, because we need crushing, don't we? Because we think we're doing okay, and we're just so deadly wrong. Maybe it's the Christmas season as we began this morning, but I have this picture in my mind. Those of you know, I'm a huge fan of A Christmas Carol. And I think of Ebenezer Scrooge, confronted with the reality of his sin that night. And God sending in his forbearance and his kindness and patience three spirits to show him his sin. And I know you don't recall this version when he wakes up and he says, well, yeah, that's my God, back to my Scrooging. No, he did what? I repent. I repent. And he woke up with the joy then that is rightfully living under a kind, forbearing, patient God. That's the picture. And instead of scrooging his money, what did he do? He just went and he gave it and was generous. Oh, how we miss this. God's kindness is meant for our repentance. We miss it, yet, again, not true for everyone as we think about what it's designed to do. In fact, for many, this is the ongoing reality. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, this is stubbornness. Look at the word there, hard, and impenitent are the word for hard is hardening. That's sclerotes, which where we get sclerosis from, and you know that word. It happens often to parts of our body, right? When disease sets in upon us, and what it is, sclerosis is a hardening. It impairs function. You have a hardening going on in your body. Well, here in the heart, you can imagine the impairment that happens when your heart is hardened. A hardening, regardless of boast or presumption or any knowing about God, is the cause of wrath stored up for oneself. Mounting, building to be outpour. 
Consider the present wrath, the present judgment in giving over. Well, here Paul shifts to remind of the coming eschatological wrath. This is the culmination, the horizon wrath, the storehouse. It's fitting here because the moralist is often not feeding pigs like the depraved pagan. You remember that last week? The moralist slips by radars. No, for certain, his position is the same as that young son in the sty, but it is masked in righteous claims. As such, Paul reminds this man that in his passing judgment and presumption, his heart is no less hardened than all of righteous, unrighteous humanity. Thus, this man will be subject to the wrath to be poured out on that coming day. That's the point. He may be a subset of unsaved man, but listen, he's still an unsaved man. Do you see that? He's still an unsaved man. And as a result, he's subject to this. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1 describes vividly what this will look like. Not only the why, but the what. Let's pick it up in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. There it is. There's our connection to our text. The righteous. Here's the evidence of what we've been studying in Romans 2. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you're also suffering. Much more we could say about that. But here's the point, verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, this is, yes, the second coming of Christ, and what's he coming to do? In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the key. This is what God's righteous judgment is. This is the mounting, the storing that builds to that day when Christ returns and Christ brokers that judgment. Let's not miss that. God's righteous judgment then on that day is inescapable to all who practice evil and thereby disobey the gospel of God. That takes us back to Romans. Turn back there. Do you see that God's righteous judgment as we think about works and deeds The point in Scripture is it's coming for those that disobey the gospel of God. Now hang on to that as we continue through. Our second point. First, God's righteous judgment is inescapable. Secondly, God's righteous judgment is impartial. These next few verses, we'll pick it up in verse 6. These next few verses here from 6 to 11, it's like a sandwich or a bookend. In fact, we're going to read verses 6 and 11 because they really give us the thrust, and then it's unpacked in 7 to 10. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Very clear. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. He renders to each one according to his works, and he's not not partial in doing that. He's not partial. He's impartial, and we'll see that. What lies between those statements of God, verses 7 to 10, simply are going to unfold this truth in verse 6 and 11. And it is this, God will render each one according to his works. That is impartiality. That is just retribution. Listen, based on what the man has done, not who the man is, let's not miss this. 
It's just. It's impartial because it's based on his deeds. It's not some partiality of who he is. God doesn't operate that way. And beloved, as we learn in our study in Exodus, this is justice. This is who your God is. Remember, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a stripe for a stripe, Exodus 21, 24 to 25. God's law, if you recall our Exodus study in that passage, not a catalog of what items are to be paid back in retribution. That's not the point of that Old Testament law. But it gives us the character of how retribution is paid back. And what is that? What's the character of retribution? Justly, fairly, rightly. That's the point. And this man receiving back what in measure he has doled out. So he's receiving back what in measure what he has done. And it is consistent with God. And listen, this we even move beyond the law of the Old Testament, which is important. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Luke read Psalm 62 this morning. Listen to the last two verses again. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And then this, for you will render to a man according to his work. What about wisdom literature? Proverbs 24 says exactly the same thing. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does, he not, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And then this, and will he not repay man according to his work? This character of justice, true, always of God, is what Paul is talking about here in Romans. This has always been true of God. And look at it unfold in verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That's one set of deeds with one output. Two, verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, same thing as 2 Thessalonians 1, but obey unrighteousness, there will be what? Wrath and fury. Deeds one with output one, deeds two with output two. Same principle of justice here. Those who seek God's doing, His glory, His honor, they are given eternal life. They're given eternal life. Those who seek self and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they're given wrath and fury. It's just simple and just, is it not? That's our God. If you look closely, you'll notice that really this is an extension of what we learned in chapter 1, isn't it? So with this group, the self-seekers, in the end, they gain what? They gain their reward, and their reward is what? Themselves. They've been seeking themselves their whole life, so justly they get themselves. They get just what not only they wanted, but what they lived for and acted for. That's just. It's just. They gain the end that comes with more and more self, which is, by the way, less and less God. Eventually, the self-seeker lands as he keeps going, being given over, lands in the place of complete God separation. Eternal living, indeed, right into eternity. Eternal living, but not eternal life. Eternal living under God's wrath and fury. That is justice. And justice, as it is with God, is perfect, and it plays no favorites. Look at verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. There it is again. 
the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Remember the good news that was the same from the Old Testament to the New. Nothing changed. Do you remember that? Recall in chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel of God that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and then what? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You recall that. Euangelion first in the Old to Israel, then the New beyond Israel to the Greek and so on. Well, that same idea is found here in chapter 2, verse 10. Yet along with that, look at it, in the same way, as salvation is delivered to both impartially, the Jew and the Greek, or the non-Jew, God equally shows no partiality in His righteous judgment. So if He didn't show it in salvation, we would expect this, that He wouldn't show it in righteous judgment. Tribulation and distress is true for the Jew just as much as it is for the Greek. Now listen, this would be a grave offense to the Jew. We talked about a little bit that idea for the Jew that salvation, relationship with God, was exclusive to them. If that was an offense to God, knowing it was brought in beyond Israel, you can imagine how God's righteous judgment here being declared to the Jew first and also to the Greek would be received. Now, we're going to get to that next week. But the point here is that God is impartial in salvation and judgment. Now, once again, we must acknowledge, Westmount, that our God never changes. He shows no impartiality. 1 Peter 1.17 says, The Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. We just see this principle over and over and over again. But you know, we need to, beloved, think even deeper here. Before we leave this point on the implications. So, no passes, no tickets, no excuses, no turning of the eyes for the ignorant evildoer or the misguided evildoer or the really nice evildoer, right? Impartiality knows nothing of saying, well, okay, they were evil, but they were really nice in their deliverance of it. Listen, do evil, worship idols, be sexually immoral, envy, gossip, lie, boast, break agreements, dishonor parents, and so on. Do such evil, and this is the result. Look at the text. Tribulation and distress, wrath stored up, God's righteous judgment revealed. Yes, church, there's no partiality. God's righteous judgment is impartial. Always has been and always will be now. This passage warrants a couple final comments before we close it, because oftentimes when I'm studying the Word and putting it together, I, I try to think about what you're thinking as we get to this point. And I have no doubt there's some really good Protestants in the room that are very fired up about something like this. But number one, let's just reiterate this right now. God's righteous judgment is dispensed according to our deeds. Again, before we say anything else, let's recognize what the Bible is saying. Can we do that? It's dispensed according to our deeds. That's been so clear. But I think we need to give more in light of that truth and how it just shakes our sensibilities. Throughout the old and new, we see the promise that God will judge by our deeds. We already read from the law where we reference the law. We've talked about Psalms and Proverbs. 
just look at a few in the New Testament. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians 5. Listen closely. By the way, in a passage, a great passage and chapter that we are new creations, right? Paul says this, same author, same human author used by God. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Why would we do that? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? For what he has done. On judgment day, like Romans 2, we each receive retribution for our deeds. By the way, same in 2 Timothy 4. And I go to that letter because it's the last one Paul wrote before he lost his life. In 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul says this of Alexander the coppersmith, who, by the way, was a really bad man and who would fit in quite nicely into Romans 1 and 2. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And then this, the Lord will repay him according to what? His deeds. And you say, okay, well, I just can't take it anymore. What about Jesus? Just give me Jesus. Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. What is Jesus, how does Jesus weigh in on our deeds? Matthew 16, Jesus, as he does all throughout his ministry, teaching, often combating false teaching, he says this. I don't have time to go through all the context here, but he's talking about being a disciple of Jesus. I mean, this is where he's zeroing in, right? This is what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what? To what he has done done. More from Jesus. Turn to John 5. John 5, verse 29. By the way, this is a passage as we get into chapter 5, a passage about judgment directly and the authority of the Son brokering that justice. By the way, this is the point in John 5. And let's parachute into the argument here in verse 25. Let's just pick it up a little earlier. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So there it is. And then this. Do not marvel, verse 28 do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Is Jesus unclear there? No. It's about deeds. From God's law to Jesus to Paul, same justice, God's righteous judgment. Now that's one. Second, God's righteous judgment is different to God's righteous justification. Let me say that again. God's righteous judgment is different to God's righteous justification. And here's where we clear things up. Justification is by faith, yes. By faith. But judgment is according to works, as we see here. We do not need to comment on this because, because some, again, have lots of protests at this point, and hopefully the text has been answering that. But you might be thinking still, well, well, sure, but it sounds like a whole lot of works-based theology to me, right? Works-based theology. And I want you to know, Westmount, yes, I, I will say, it, that's because it is. 
It is. It's works-based theology. You, you can take that. That's not just what we're saying. It's what the Bible teaches. Before you get up in arms, let me also say this before you kick me out. In the end, it is works that get you to heaven. It is works that get you to heaven. But the well-informed, truly saved, truly redeemed, Holy Spirit-indwelt Christian knows it's not their works, is it? Whose works? Christ. That's works-based theology. His work of righteousness to live and practice God's standard perfectly. Christ's work of taking that life, laying it down, bearing God's wrath. Yes, those works. And listen to me. Only those works the Bible teaches get one to heaven. None of your works will get you there. But it is by works. But there's more here. Because in our flesh we want to say, well, there it is. I was beginning to get a little concerned about what's going on at Westmount. Right? There it is, maybe more, if we can be real with each other. Okay, I feel better about my sin. Yeah, it is Jesus. Just give me Jesus. It's Christ. I feel better that it's still just Jesus. Hold it right there. This is not just one trusting Christ for salvation. This is not just one who will be covered in Christ's righteousness on that day. This is one that is cloaked in Christ's righteousness every day leading to that day. This is one, unlike the moralist, that doesn't lead with morality. And here's the problem. He's not leading with his morality. He's not letting his righteousness drive the bus. This is one who is led by faith. From salvation to sanctification to glory. That means such a one, unlike the moralist today, does not leave one scratching their head about their morality. This is one that you're not scratching your head. Well, he says he loves Jesus, but I don't see Jesus. People don't see passing judgment, always finger-pointing, and then no practice. Listen, for the truly righteous, for the redeemed, onlookers see one who practices their past judgment. And the equally evident point in Scripture is this. Let's get this right. I'll say this slowly. That you will know one is justified. What do we mean by justified? Meaning positionally made right with God. Not because of their work, but because of the work of Christ, you will know one is justified because their works will justify that position. Does that make sense? Their works will testify to the fact that they have this position. We've covered this so much, I know, but after centuries, listen to me, centuries of diluted Protestant works of verse teaching. We just continue to trip over this very clear reality. Listen, good works... Let's be pointed as we leave. Good works is the expected New Testament behavior of the redeemed. Good works is the New Testament expectation of the redeemed. That is why it is not just faith, but the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5, that's faith's character, remember? That is why it's not just faith, but faith that is revealed by one's works. James 2.18, that's faith's testimony. I will show you my faith by my works, not my words. There's no tension here, beloved. In fact, the only tension is the one we want to create. 
The Bible is clear. And to end our time this morning, we must go to one of the clearest texts that says this, that directly takes us to the gospel. We go to Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, we will see all of what Paul is teaching and all of what the Bible teaches when we think about good works and where they come from and how this can all fit together rightly and neatly and in a good way for us. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is a well-known passage, so we're just going to work upwards with it. And that's the point this morning. Look at verse 10. I mean, this is a verse you know well. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Very clearly, we are created for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. Do you see that? But I want you to see the domain of those works. You see it right there in the middle of the verse. Where's the location? In who? Christ Jesus. We say, well, how does one get there then? You're telling me it's in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that we're clear it's not ours, so that no one may boast. Well, how do you become in Christ Jesus? By faith with the gift given and responding in faith by the way that God gives. That's what places you in Christ Jesus. But there's more as we continue to work upwards. Look at the transition in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, this is, this is what happens. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Do you remember the kindness, the forbearance, the patience? The great love, the rich mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now that's love. That's kindness. Even when we were dead, he made us to alive together with who? Christ. And here's the Reformation cry. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where we're placed by the mercy of God. So that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Where? In Christ Jesus. And beloved, all of that is true and necessary. That new location because this was true of the one walking in Christ. Verses 1 to 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was once true of you, Christian. And you did work in that deadness. But do you see... What Paul does here in this argument is that you've been transferred from those works, right? Obedience to death. You've been transferred to obedience to Christ. And not just because you're following a really good moral code and you're a really good moralist. Because you've been taken and placed in the Son. Do you see that? And that's the point. This tension, if there even is one and there isn't is resolved with this one doctrine. 
union with Christ. You are one with Christ. And that is why if you're truly united with Christ, listen to me because this is what the text is saying, verse 10, you will look like Christ. Right? If you have union and have been joined with him, you will look like him. And you won't leave people scratching their heads. Because you've been plucked from the deeds of darkness, placed to the kingdom of light. By grace you've been saved, not because of your works at all, because of his kindness, you're in Christ Jesus. And all of that to say, verse 10, you are now his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What of your works, friend? What of your works? I mean, you're confronted with your works this morning, aren't you? Do you know that works will be weighed on Judgment Day? You saw that. Verse 5, Romans 1. It may mean, I wonder for you, you're still trusting in your own works and not Christ. You've not received His gift of salvation. That's the implication. If you're bucking up against good works as a Christian, let's let the text arrest us and say, where are we with Christ? Where are we? We were not made to kick our feet up and claim the rich mercy of God and say, isn't he a great God? We were claimed to live him. We're claimed to live him. You say, well, I see verses 1 and 3. You don't understand. That's not me. Those are those lawbreakers. I mean, this is just too much this morning. If that's you clinging to how much better you are than those lawbreakers, then you might just be a moralist. Why? Because at the end of the matter... Listen to me. At the end of the matter, when you're making a defense for how you'll be on Judgment Day, what did you turn to? You turned to your own works in relation to other people. And the redeemed say, no, I have nothing. What did Gary remind us of this morning? I have nothing to offer. And on that day, Jason, on that day, my only hope is Jesus Christ. I have nothing to offer. In fact, I'm more wretched than they are. And praise God for Jesus Christ. That's not a moralist. That's a Christian. In the end of the matter, when God's righteous judgment is delivered, the question is, whose work are you going to stand on? Whose good works are you going to stand on? God's righteous judgment, look, is inescapable and it's impartial. No one can escape and it's doled out justly. On that day, what power will you be relying on for eternity, yours or Christ's? I pray as you consider your faith and works today that it is indeed Jesus Christ. And I pray that it can be you on that day when God's righteous judgment is delivered, that it is delivered through the cross and through Christ for you. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, God, we recognize that we are bankrupt in our ability to do anything good and righteous. If it wasn't for your kindness your forbearance and patience, we would spend an eternity separated from you. So God, we thank you. Thank you for sending your son to bear the wrath reserved for us. Thank you, Father, that now we can not just be redeemed to be saved, but we can walk in the works that you've prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. Thank you that we can walk in righteousness as Christians, Lord, demonstrating through our works that we are saved and so that others would know that there is salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. This we plea in his name. Amen.